I could say, hello, this is Total Global. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so I do this and then you start with this. Okay. Okay? <laughs> okay, you say, hello, this is Total Global. <laughs> you can do it now. Am I recording? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> hello and welcome to Total Global. This, okay, I'm going to do it again. Hello and welcome to Total Global, or in German Total Global, the Total Global podcast of Friedi and Esten, two um, fiancés from the US and Germany. Today is a very special episode and Esten will tell us more why. <laughs> Today is a very special episode. I'm going to be talking to my friend Anthony Chanjet Foy about social entrepreneurship and world federalism. Anthony is a member coordinator of a social entrepreneurship organization, so he has met a lot of social entrepreneurs from around the world. Uh, in the interview, we discussed the role of social entrepreneurship in international development and how world federalism may do it better. It's a very interesting interview. Uh, thanks again to Anthony for coming on. I apologize in advance for the low audio quality we were recording on <laughs> skype and it was our first uh my first time recording an interview um on skype so uh yeah i did my best trying to clean up the audio um so yeah we're gonna get straight into the interview yeah check us out on uh our website was that correct mm -hmm. check us out on our website anchor.com slash total global no no not anchor.com anchor.fm <laughs> slash total global or email us or do both at total global at protonmail.com all our links uh, all our information we talk about in our podcast all the links are in the description thanks for listening and have fun with the cool interview hello hi anthony how are hi, you I'm I'm good, thank you. Yeah, yeah, chilling. Yeah, it's good to it's good to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Welcome to Total Global. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Yeah. So, I just wanted to ask you about what you're doing with civil society and social entrepreneurship. Are you doing yeah. an internship or do you work there now? I'm still doing an internship. I got my title. A little while ago, I'm a membership coordinator. And so, what is your what is your internship there? What do they What does this organization do? We do a lot of things. Um, I think we're trying to be kind of a a voice, um, you know, a knowledge producer on this idea of uh, social innovation, tying um, solving public problems with kind of um, entrepreneurial spirit and using market solutions to solve problems that exist um, with either a social or environmental kind of mission to any enterprise that starts. Are, do, they, do you help them lobby governments for, for recognition or are, get funding or what is the purpose? Like what's their, what are the goals for these? Well, so these, these organizations have already uh, 
you know, provided a solution to a public problem. The the members of the network have all, by and large, already, um, you know, proven their enterprise to have a positive benefit on society or uh, with regards to the environment or in terms of social justice. So um, what really they're asking for is a, um, you know, a seat at the table to to be mm -hmm. able to, um, you know, influence the direction of, of public policy making. Mm. Because if the governments that are involved in, um, you know, regulating these enterprises, they're they're also involved in, um, I guess, the the problems that these enterprises are trying to address, um, and so coming from that perspective as uh, an entity that is regulated, uh, whose business is to solve a public problem, a policy perspective like that is quite unique. Hmm. So they already have the answer almost, but they just yeah. need, they just need funding or, or recognition or the green light to, to make it happen. Often the the main things is uh, funding, um, staffing, which is tied also with funding, um, and I guess you could say legitimacy. And how would you say that balancing the like economic demands um, of of these organizations match with the social good, the the, the social and environmental goods, like with mm. the SDGs? I. I Personally, I think it's tough. I mean, you know, I am in there as a recent graduate, as you said. Um, and so I don't have much experience kind of running a company. And I can see that there's all sorts of challenges and stuff that you have to kind of adhere to. And like I said, there's all kind of regulations that are involved. Um, but at the same time, um, there's this, I guess, communications um aspect to what we do right to in order to to kind of sell the vision of what we're doing we're talking in very grand and lofty ideals about justice and planetary regeneration and well we do all these we say all these great things but because we have to adhere to all these like economic regulations because at the end of the day we're still a business like that's the nature of being a for benefit business is that you are still a business and that means that the social and environmental goals that we talk about and that we say are guiding our actions and our decisions in my view sometimes take a back seat to the economic and regulatory decision like decisions or concerns that need to be taken account of how how does this relate to like corporate social responsibility then well Corporate social responsibility could be a part of um, what uh, achieving an SDG, but corporate social responsibility could also be seen as a marketing tactic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that an organization is trying to greenwash their reputation by committing to certain goals and not acting on them and still acting in a way that can be considered exploitative or not in... Uh, kind of the interests of the environment and sustainability in general. And or so, people. Or people, exactly, right. 
So um, we as an organization have these goals of systems change and equality and justice. And at the same time, by the nature of having to adhere to uh, the regulations for businesses and acting in that sector or at least adjacent to it means that we are beholden to the rules and kind of have to play the same game that businesses do, which in my opinion is fundamentally exploitative. Mm. So it's hard for these social entrepreneurs who, who may have a, a warm heart and uh, want to change the world and be, do good things, but it's hard for them to escape the capitalist system that surrounds them and surrounds everything that they do. In my opinion, yes. Okay. Not just within the social entrepreneurial sector, but in aid, foreign aid, there's huge problems in terms of kind of uh, embezzlement of foreign aid funds or corruption within kind of uh, cronyism, um, that kinds of things. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to forgot where I'm going with this. Yeah, no, what I get with you, I mean, the international development sector in general is not, is, is largely imperfect, you know, and I, and I, and that's a good way of phrasing it. I mean, I, I really wanted to do international development. I wrote my bachelor's thesis on uh, society, technology, and international development. I was really all about it. Mm. And um, the more I learned about it, uh, the more I became really disillusioned with the whole project, um, mm. especially with my position in society and being uh, this like upper class white guy from the U.S. And mm. you know, I'm gonna, and I and I haven't really lost lost that uh, emphasis on like helping change the world but in terms of me you know digging wells in Africa I'd, you know I'd rather just donate money to look mm. people to do that to do that there yeah exactly so I mean there, there's good like humanitarian work that needs to be done you know in disaster areas and in war zones I mean there I'm not saying that all humanitarianism is bad but it's a it's a broad sector and there is a lot of self-serving interests and and a lot of poverty porn um, mm. I see that here in Germany a lot in the newspaper. We always like it's really common to get the like the insert into the newspaper with the poor mm-hmm, little girl mm-hmm. of color and, mm-hmm. and with dirt on her face and, and living in the mud hut. Yeah, exactly. Or I mean, in the refugee camp. And it, it's not to say that these people don't need help, but mm. these institutions that um, survive by printing these pamphlets of mm. these people who don't know that maybe, I mean, I don't know if that little girl knew that she would be put into millions of newspapers in Germany mm. to help this organization mm. run their administrative costs. Mm. You know, mm. so there is, a, there is a certain element to it that, but I mean, it is good in general. And I, but I would really prefer, and it, it's a stopgap. Mm. And I think that's what I've learned. The more I've learned about your uh, work with civil society is that, I mean, especially that call that I was on the other day I, mm. with all those important people. Mm. And it, it it felt so much like a government call. Mm. Like they were organized, okay, what are we going to do with healthcare? What are we going to do with uh, women's rights mm. or with education and all these mm. different issues, like departments of a, of a government. Mm. But it was mm. all civil society organizations. Mm. And I'm just like, you know, this is this is nice that these people have stepped in to do, mm. to fill this void in the international mm. system. I mean, it's mm. anarchy. The nation mm. states don't really do anything. Mm. We have these STGs, but mm-hmm. there's no enforcement mm-hmm. to meet them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you have these these people who, yeah, and and they have to fulfill their self-interest because they're not bureaucrats just getting a paycheck for it. Right. They have to sell right. their ideas. Yeah. yeah. And and a lot of times, you know, so it's it's 
yeah, they're also selling the idea of 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 civil society at the same time that they're actually providing the goods. Right. And yeah, maybe. And then to my yeah chagrin, the the yeah, it frustrates me how much the you know the passion with which these uh, people talk and the great ideas that they have, um, and in my view, it's still just a privatization of public problems. And, you know, the individual or the citizen is taking on responsibility for the failings of the state, rather than the state taking responsibility and action for the failings of the state. And great yeah. that some people can make money from it, but uh, it's still a privatization of public problems. And the person that's making money from it, more often than not, is a white guy. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so as much as we're saying we are shifting the balance of power away from, you know, the long-held institutional power structures that have existed in this world were also part of that system and also quite often perpetuating these power relationships. Yeah, I mean, especially when they think about growing their, organ their own organization, you know, they want to hire people, they want to have an office, and so they start to grow, more often than not, they start to grow their capital costs in the global north Mm -hmm. And that's an administrative cost that become become a large element of what they're doing and their and their operations or programs costs are 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 null because they take advantage of the wealth disparity. So they, they might hire people in the global south, but they pay them the living wages for the global south. So it's it's far less. So you you have these human rights lawyers and they're great. And I love what human rights lawyers do, but they get paid six figures to live in Geneva mm -hmm. and write law briefs on human mm -hmm. rights law and then the and then the program officer in in Cote d'Ivoire gets mm -hmm. paid you know far less you know and mm -hmm. and and that's how the organization and and does part of the yeah. same work and that is so closely related that one couldn't exist without the other as well that one couldn't function without the other yeah exactly and and getting back to what we were saying about about your the privatization of public problems because I think that's a really critical here and so that that's really what was so interesting to me is because that really is what it appears like and and so it comes down to an issue of uh, like global public goods mm. and I love this term and I've just learned about it a couple of days ago and I think it's great um, and it's like how do we provide global public goods and is this something that that should be provided and mm. what are they. What is mm -hmm. a global public good? I mean, mm -hmm. I think obviously we can quickly say like the climate. We need like mm -hmm. a livable earth. That's mm -hmm. probably like the first one. Mm -hmm. um, but then I would even go so far as to throw in healthcare and education into mm -hmm. that. And usually mm -hmm. when I do that, a lot of other world federalists say, hey, no, those are national public goods. Mm -hmm. Humanity as a whole has no right to healthcare and education. Mm -hmm. That's only, only people in certain yeah. countries. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like, no, colors I, often. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a really uh, yeah. It, there is a racist. There is a colonial connotation to a lot of this. Mm. And so I I really see world federalism as totally decolonial, mm. and anti and anti colonial. And and that's the that should be the forefront of it. To be honest, is like we are. This is really the deconstructing the power structures. I mean, when you think about a global parliament, if it included all of humanity, the white rich people would be a small minority in that parliament. Mm. And so if that global parliament was tasked with coming up with a tax or a solidarity levy is the term that's used as an international solidarity levy. That's an idea. 
um, you know, who would they put it on, you know, mm. you know, and how would it be a progressive tax rate mm. or, you know, and, it, you know, and it, it would, would be the people who it would be going to that would be deciding on that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and I think, um, Esten, also what's kind of driving our discussion from both of our kind of um, you from the World Federalist side and my from the what I'm doing with civil society, I think both of us are kind of drawing from our shared uh, learning, right, uh, on our public policy course of localized democratic decision making. Mm -hmm. I think I see that both as, as a thread kind of in both of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, with you, with the civil society and bringing people together and helping and helping these uh, different um, social entrepreneurs communicate with each other and work on projects and, mm -hmm. and share information with each other. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and that's just that's just running an organization, and 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 we find that um, also in in world federalism as as a as a good template for for how the world should be run i mean there's just a simple lack of information sharing mm. um between the countries of the world i mean and the un tries to spearhead efforts you know and there's a lot of emphasis on the on data now and mm. every international development organization has a data office now and and that's all really great but but there's still no emphasis or incentive for anybody to participate in any of these things. And so mm -hmm. there's, and there's still this competitive nature of it. And so because mm -hmm. so much of international mm -hmm. development is, yeah, it's like privatized and all mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's really hard to, I think that 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 right there, the, this how international development, it sits somewhere between the public and the private mm -hmm. really hurts it in the end and doesn't, mm -hmm. And it should all be public and, and mm. developing this planet mm. Earth to make it livable and peaceful and just and good for everybody is a is a public good. And, mm. and, and companies provide private goods and these two things should be separate. And yep. so while I love your social entrepreneurship and that those guys are great and they're filling this void right mm. now. So mm. I think for the time being, we need this sort of halfway group of mm. people. Mm. Um, to provide basic services as best they can, mm. but it's not systems change. No, and that shouldn't be the final solution to have private entities provide the solutions for these public problems. And that's what I'm struggling with as I'm working within this organization. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, as you say, then there's kind of, where are we getting our legitimacy from? Uh, because we're making money and because a lot of people respect how much money that we make, is that where our legitimacy is coming from? And not kind of from a democratic process mm. that has kind of addressed this and, and allocated funds as well, mm. democratically based on, on a decision that we've collectively made and not because, you know, I made a good sales pitch to the funder with lots of money. Yeah. Yeah. The legitimacy is, 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 is the same thing that makes Nike legitimate. Yeah. You know, it's, it's ability to sell sneakers and have brand recognition. And that's yeah. why Nike is is the most popular or, or any any of these brands, yeah. any normal big company. Yeah. That's why they're legitimate. And that that same mindset is what drives the social entrepreneurs and or it, it, it doesn't drive them. But it's it's how they yeah, it's what I'm they sure need they to say. operate. Right. Because they're operating within the same system. 
yeah, how do you how do you measure the difference between the public interest and the private interest? And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what social responsibility is all about. And that's what uh, social entrepreneurship is all about. And it's interesting to hear your thoughts about the um, the variety of opinions in the civil society organizations mm -hmm. that you work with and that some are really see themselves as humanitarians and more towards the public good side of things and then others see themselves as yeah helping emerging markets with capitalism mm. and so really on the private good side of things yeah and i mean uh, yeah i'm not sure how many would kind of put it explicitly in those terms but it's definitely something that i kind of see operating maybe even unconsciously yeah in discussions around kind of where to base your headquarters or kind of the salaries that we're trying to pay, like you mentioned earlier, you know, we have to cater to a certain market, which is generally located in the global north used to a six figure salary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's in it's, you know, may not even be at that level consciously, but it is fundamentally part of the way that we operate as an organization. Yeah. And that's the that's the other thing is that a lot of these issues aren't aren't conscious for a lot of people and so even though and it's really interesting to hear you say that about these these social entrepreneurs working a lot of times internationally and how they're not even completely conscious of their role as uh, decolonizers you know mm. and and how that should be something that they think about mm. um and and don't even think about that that they exist in a post-colonial or neo-colonial system mm. um and, and again they may do then they may recognize it and they, but they see their model of social entrepreneurship as the answer to uh or as a way to address the root issues of colonialism and don't see it as neo-colonialism mm -hmm. yeah well you can i guess you can hope so yeah 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 and i'm sure it's not true for everyone but as you're saying yeah a lot of people don't even see it mm. and i think that that i mean my my point being that i mean that's what's nice, I think, about world federalism is that you, it doesn't really require everybody to wake up and, and smell the roses and realize that their they're standing in this world is built through generations of, you know, legacy wealth payments and extractive economies from the global south to the global north and building up a social welfare state in Europe required the colonialism of the of, of the 17th and 18th centuries, you know, like that. Other people don't even, don't even see that. And so, and in this one effort to go and teach everybody about that and about their history and why things are so great in Europe and how they have all these sovereign wealth funds a lot of the times or how mm. they have these super rich families that can afford to support these charities and to make everything so nice in Europe, um, I mean, and you can do that education, but in terms of changing the system for me, and I think because I, because I studied policy, it comes really down into just like, how do we change the political system to mm. address these problems? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yes, teaching people about these things and making them enlightened or woke about their place in the world and realizing their privilege, essentially. Mm. That's great, and that should happen, but that's not necessarily going to solve the problems. No, that's not going to get the changes that need to be made made. Yeah, mm. and so that's where I come down into like a global 
tax mm. that would just tax all these people, whether they're enlightened or not. Right. That allows rulemaking across borders uh, that, that can address this divide. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah. Can you, I mean, so how would, you know, these, these fundamental human rights, you could call them, um, how would that work in a world federalist framework? Yeah, well, I mean, there's the, the justice element and then enforcement. Mm. So, uh, you know, freedoms from violence and things like that. And then like UN, you know, a lot more UN peacekeepers and, and ending war and that sort of and that sort of thing. And then uh, increasing the rule of law in places that don't have it and that sort of stuff. But then there's the the freedom, freedom to or the right to education and and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has two international covenants that came after it mm. um, later. So the, the UNDHR was like 1948. And then in the 60s and 70s, um, the UN, and it, had a, it has a lot of support, a lot of signatories are signed by most of the countries in the world. Mm. And the first one was civil and political rights. And the next one is economic and social rights. And those two international covenants do a great job. And, and in theory, they were supposed to help implement the Declaration of Human Rights. And so I really like to look at those two international covenants for looking at because they really go into each right specifically mm. and what it means on the ground. So economic mm. and social rights is like a right to labor unions, a right to uh, fair wages and safe working conditions. Mm. Uh, and obviously like all this anti-discrimination and, uh, you know, when it comes to the social rights, like there's no, you can't hate anybody for anything and mm -hmm. you can't be violent for anybody for any reason and, mm -hmm. and those sorts of things, which are extremely critical. And so, yeah, so that's the labor side of things. And then, yeah, with education, you know, a right to an education and then you connect it to the, to the money. Cause I, I also saw that in, in, in that call uh, was a huge emphasis on financing for international development and how are we going to convince the G20 to, because um, they're meeting soon, uh, how are we going to convince the G20 to uh, not uh, start collecting debt from all the poor countries uh, while Corona is still happening? Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, how, it's just really interesting. It's like all these civil society people trying to ask themselves, like, how do we how do we run the global economy through mm. begging the rich countries to do good things? Mm. And so you would rather that type of discussion was held in a global parliament to then be, I guess, instituted at the various levels of the world federal system. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, thank you. And that that discussion i mean it wouldn't those discussions would happen but it's really about the global parliament having the authority i mean i just can imagine that, that it wouldn't be a very long discussion mm. all of these countries who aren't the the permanent members of the un security council mm. or or the members of the g20 or the mm. g7 yeah all of these other countries are going to quickly say hey we should tax the rich countries and we should tax the companies Mm. And the rich people there. Mm. I mean, I just see that as being a pretty obvious solution to a lot of these problems. You know, it's like we need to fund, we need to finance international development. We need uh, healthcare and education at a high quality around the world. That takes money and, mm. and education. I mean, it's all connected. So let's tax the rich countries and distribute the money to the poor countries. Mm. 
And it's it that that simplifies this whole thing that civil society has been struggling with for decades mm. at the international level, where there is very little authority or enforcement, and I mean even custom, right? Even informal laws can make up part of international law. So formalizing these into a federalized structure with kind of processes could provide that level of, of stability and logis- legitimacy, I guess, around these issues. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I exactly. have a question, though. Yeah. About uh, the federal structure of the world federal system mm-hmm. is, I mean, so we're saying, right, that like with the EU, where sovereignty is shared between the member states and the European Union, um, that would be the case between uh, the world federal structure and the nation states. But what about at the national level? Would that require any kind of change there in terms of the the political institutions that exist? Well, yeah, I, I think for sure. I mean, when you talk about sovereignty sharing, that does, I mean, Germany has had a lot of national changes as it's as the EU has grown um, and, and come into more power, you know. So, yeah, I think for sure. And then uh, another template of the full process would be the United States, which started out as a loose confederation mm. of colonies, of former colonies that, mm. that almost that had different currencies and and even different languages in some in some respects. Mm. And and uh, that now they're, you know, what they are today, one massive state. And, you know, and it took a it took a long time. It took a civil war mm. um, to get there. So it, it's not a very it's not a simple or easy process, the, the process of federalizing um, states. Mm. Um, and and so I think what we would see, like I said before, with the regions is that, yeah, I mean, it might happen that this happens more in regions first, and maybe the regions of the world will be the thing that federalizes. I think this was a really enlightening uh, conversation um, uh, about the, yeah, how to deal with the the private interest and the public interest in, in social entrepreneurship and civil society. And at the same time, uh, how world federalism could potentially... Uh, help solve those issues mm. yeah yeah i really enjoyed learning more about the world federalist perspective yeah well it's certainly a weird one uh if you want to learn more about that you can go to ywf.world <laughs> Ooh, good a nice plug at the end there i like that yeah so so thank you very much anthony and i will uh, talk to you later yeah, thank you for having me it's been a pleasure <laughs>